0: there. How's it going across the Journey Church family today? It's great, delightful, uh, fun to be with you in worship, especially if you're a guest. We're delighted you're here and hope today is meaningful and significant for you. Every August for the past six or seven years, I've lost track actually. The Willow Creek Leadership Summit has been a non-negotiable in my August calendar. I just won't miss it. I encourage as many of our uh, staff team to get there, we rally folks to the best of our ability from across the journey family to get over there to Billings to take it in at the satellite site as well that 's because I believe very firmly from the top of my head to the very tips of my toes that at a minimum and I just mean it 's a minimum deal that all of those who ha- all of us who have influence in any setting and that 's all of us by the way, we all have influence in some setting that any of us who have influence in any setting must, must pull away at least one time per year and have a spiritually renewing leadership recharge and recalibration. Now, I've heard some people in the world of church talk about this concept of leadership development, and they say, that leadership development deal, that's a secular concept. We shouldn't be talking about leadership development in the church. It doesn't have any place in the church. I take a different view, though. Romans 12, 8 seems to illuminate this view. It actually spells out the biblical mandate for leadership development quite clearly. The Bible says, he who leads, the he, ignore the he, just pretend it's like any person. He, she, anyone who leads, let them do it with diligence. And if you wonder what the word diligence means, it's very simple. Take your leadership very seriously and get better. Take your leadership, take your influence very seriously and then get better at it. With all diligence, lead. This concept of leadership development, it's a biblical concept that we should all take very seriously. The summit for me has been incredibly instrumental in my leadership getting better and I need to get better. Some of you agree very wholeheartedly with that. Yes, you do. Get after it now, please. This year we took about 35 or so from across the Journey Church family over to Billings for the summit. It was a great group of folks, a mix of staff and community members alike to be refreshed and to be challenged, to be stretched in our leadership philosophy and skill training. And 35 is a great number, but we hoped and want that leadership, that skill training, that stuff to permeate more deeply, more widely across the Journey Church community. So we created this weekend that you're sitting here for, and we're calling it very profoundly Stuff from the Summit. Stuff from the Summit. And here's how it goes. I've asked myself and four others from our staff, and I I don't know exactly how that went, the asking of myself. Just picture me standing in front of a mirror, asking myself, Brian, would you do this, please? My head, it's a weird place inside there, just so you know. I've asked myself and four others from our staff to share literally for five minutes each, what they took away from the summit session that I assigned to them. How that learning affects their leadership, how that learning affects their soul, how that learning affects their leadership across the Journey Church family community in the coming days. We're gonna start today with our pastor of worship and arts, Brandon Edwards, talking about the session, of course, with our friend Bono. So watch this, if you will. As a person who's really enjoyed giving off about the church, you have completely ruined it for me because the church has done incredible things. I'm utterly taken aback. Um, I think we referred to it as the sleeping giant, but I didn't know that giant could run that fast. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that had the church not woken up on the issue of AIDS, that uh, we would not have two million um, uh, Africans on antiretroviral drugs. That simply would not have happened.
1: So, Brian came up to me a few weeks ago and asked me to talk about Bono and some joke about wearing sunglasses or not. And, uh, But the summit is it's one of my favorite times of year because it really renews me. It gets me excited and brings me back to the core of my Christian faith and you get, I get to hear from a dozen different leaders that are really good speakers and know what they're talking about. And they talk about, and it brings me back to doing what I do. And it gets me excited. And then three years ago, Bono came to the summit through a video interview. And this rock star woke up thousands of evangelical pastors and churches to the plight of what's being called the greatest humanitarian crisis of our lifetime. I'm not sure why Brian put me up first, because uh, I'm going to be talking about the AIDS pandemic and specifically the plight of the poor in sub-Saharan Africa. So we're not pulling any punches today. We're just starting right off with that. But the fact is that 8,000 people are dying every day from AIDS. So in 10 days, the Gallatin Valley, dead. Millions of people are dying every year. And Uh, The majority of AIDS victims are women and children. My daughter, Jane, just turned four months old yesterday. And at the summit this week, Bill Hybels started talking about his two-year-old grandson, Henry, and that he would do anything for him if he were dying of hunger in Africa. And I thought, man, you're killing me because (laughs) I'm just thinking of my daughter, Jane, the whole time. And if she were in Africa dying of hunger and how I would do anything to help her. And Bono calls it stupid poverty. It's poverty that we should be able to fix, like children dying with, because of lack of food in their stomachs. Or they're dying of diseases that are easily curable and cheaply curable, like malaria and tuberculosis. These are preventable, curable diseases. 20 cents a day for malaria for six months, gone. Tuberculosis... And HIV-AIDS actually has cheap antiretroviral drugs, $140 a year, 40 cents a day, so that someone can work through their most productive years of their life. It's really important to Africa. He said, why hasn't the church jumped on board with this? They're behind the curve. There are movie stars and rock stars that are on board, and the church is sitting on the bench. And uh, he talked about that there are lots of reasons for that. But, and some of them aren't good, Um, but what it really comes down to is who you view as your neighbor. It's easy to look at my daughter and say that I do anything for her, but when I see a video or a picture or know of an African child that is dying of hunger, I don't feel the same way, at least not right away. So three scriptures really pound it home for me. Leviticus, and I'm not going to be able to talk about all three of them, so you can later look up. Leviticus 25:35, talks about how we treat our neighbor. So you can write that down. Luke 4:18. I'm also not going to talk about, but it talks about who our neighbor is. It, it's how Jesus began his ministry with this idea of jubilee, uh, which is the year of our Lord's favor. He started his ministry with that scripture. And, and then... Which is talking about that Leviticus. And then he ends his ministry with the scripture that I'm gonna look at, which is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's the sheep and the goats parable that a lot of us are are maybe aware of, but I'll go ahead and summarize it. Jesus, he's sitting at his throne with the angels, and he's talking about this right before he goes to the cross. So he's basically bookending his his entire three-year ministry. With this idea. Jesus is sitting at the thrones with his angels. Which I think is a cool idea. Jesus sitting at the thrones with his angels. And he's. And like a shepherd he separates the sheep and the goats. The ones who follow the will of the father. And the ones who don't. I'm not picking on this side. Just because you're over there. But to those on his right. The king says. Come you who are blessed. By my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And the kingdom Jesus is constantly talking about is now and not yet. So this isn't the kingdom, you know, pie in the sky when we die. This is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's starting to talk about what that looks like. And this is the scripture that really brings it home. And the the people say, how do we... How do we know if we're following the will of the Father? And he says, For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. That prison, prison one hit me a couple of weeks ago, and I, I realized that I hadn't been visiting anyone in prison. And then that is a clear deal. And I was like, man, that is a challenge. I need to think of a whole lot of reasons why I wouldn't want to do that. But I do want to do that. And um, then the scripture goes on and says, The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So it's this idea of seeing Jesus in our neighbors. And that is a different way of looking at people. What Bono was talking about was that all of the poverty and the plight of AIDS and malaria and tuberculosis are basically all slamming the hardest on sub-Saharan Africa. So all the percentages, the majority of the deaths, the majority of the illnesses, the majority of the hunger. So... This looks like Alaska, and this looks like Sub-Saharan Africa, in my mind. So if this is, sub, if this is Africa, then Sub-Saharan Africa is below this line. Ethiopia is up here. Down here is South Africa, Botswana. So there it is. And that's the area that's being hit the hardest. They're, they're getting hit the hardest, and it's basically our job to treat them as neighbors and step up to the plate. So how Journey Church has responded is, Brian went over to Ethiopia, Uh, about a year ago, and we've adopted an orphanage. We've begun to meet their needs as best we can, trying to get them clean, running, drinking water, which they don't currently have. And we're partnering with churches on the ground over there to create a lasting influence because the church is the one that will stay when everyone else packs up and goes home. So that's just a little taste of what Bono talked about. Uh, I invite you to go check out one.org and learn more about it or ask a a leader about what's going on, what we're doing here at Journey. Um, We want to take small steps and move in that direction. Thanks.
0: The story tells us that there's two ways to be alienated from the Father, two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by being very, very bad and breaking all the rules, and the other is by being very, very good, obeying all the rules, doing the Father's will in such a way that you believe God owes you a good life, owes it to you to take you to heaven. And these are people who are actually not letting Jesus be their Savior. They're being their own Savior, and yet they're in church. And they're very active in church. So right alongside of gospel-believing Christians, you've got a lot of religious elder brothers. And we need to pull a veil off of that, expose this trend, and uh, address it.
2: Exactly what he said. No, okay, this guy Tim Keller, right? He's this brilliant scholarly guy. And when he, when he spoke to us, at the summit, he never moved, and he just kind of like leaned on this thing. And he just kind of talked to us like this. And I can't do that. I don't, I don't do that kind of thing, and I'm not very scholarly. So I'm going to do my best to summarize this, right, this in-depth, deep talk that he had with us, and more words than that. Okay, so, so Tim Keller, he was talking about leading people to the prodigal God, or the, the prodigal son. You may have heard the story of the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15. Verse 11, go there and read that story. I'm just going to summarize it real quickly with the time that we have. So there's a story of a father who has two sons. All right, The the younger son, he goes to his father and asks for his half of the estate or the inheritance now before his father passes away. And, And the father says, yeah, here you go. He gives it to him. And so the son takes it and off he goes. He moves away and he spends it on what the Bible calls wild living. All right, so so there goes his his money. And, and soon after that, he found himself without food and shelter, and he was in this pen with some pigs and kind of looking at a situation, and he's like, wow, my father's servants are better off than this. And so he goes home, and he comes back home, and he, and he comes to his father, and he's like, I'm sorry. I, I, would you forgive me? I, I can't believe what's happened. I, I, I want to change. I want to do different. And then the father has compassion on him, brings him in, and they, they throw a big party. They have a celebration. He brings out a fattened calf, a, a robe, and a ring, and, and they, they celebrate his return. And in the midst of this celebration, the the older brother comes along and, and shows a bit of jealousy, and, and he, he says to his father, he's like, why, why, are, why are we celebrating this? Like he, he took the money and ran off and spent it on, on prostitutes and, and the like, and, and has nothing left. And I've been here all along, doing what you asked me to do, living like you asked me to live, obeying you, you know, earning the inheritance that I'll get when you pass away. Why aren't we having a party for me? And, and the, the father kind of just looks at him and he says, you know, you're a young, you're younger brother. He, he was lost, but now he's found, and we're going to celebrate that. And so that's how that, that story wraps up. But So often we hear it from the perspective of either either the father or the the younger brother, right? And and Tim Keller, in his brilliancy, he flipped it around. And and he kind of came at it from the older brother's perspective. And he he spelled it out somewhat like this. He said that that both of the brothers were essentially alienated from God. Both of them needed to be invited in by the father. And, And both of them were, but both of these sons came to the father for the wrong things. They came because they, they wanted the stuff that the father had, his things, not because they, they loved him. And so Keller argues that the, the older brother was trying to earn his acceptance from his father. He actually thought he was with the father based on the good things he was doing. And, and that's kind of when Keller really hit a nerve because his perspective was that the older brother represents religion And ultimately many of us in the church, and and essentially we think, myself included, that that by doing good things, we are with the Father. And so he kind of nailed down his challenge and his inspiration in in two definitions. The first one being religion. And he said religion is essentially believing I I obey God, therefore I am accepted by him. Right, essentially portraying the older brother. And then it, this other definition was of the gospel, of what, what we want our lives to be about, what we want to center our lives around. And he said, the gospel is founded in the definition that I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. So that's, that's essentially, let me say that again, religion, which is bad, right? Religion bad is I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by him. But the gospel, what, what our lives need to be about is I am accepted by God, therefore I obey him. And so for us as the Journey Church family and those of us in here today, I think we need to be challenged by those two definitions and reflect on our own lives in that. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we obeying God in an effort to be accepted by him? Right? Or, or are we holding on to the sacrifice of Jesus, of Jesus on the cross, are, are we knowing that we're already accepted and we just can't help but to obey him? Right, that, that's the question. I hope that, that we start to land on the second half of that question. And, and I want to just tie that in a little bit to, to me and, and what I have the opportunity to do around here at leading the, the student ministries department. Um, I think that means that I have to ask the question, are we raising up older brothers or are we raising up students who are wrecked by the grace of Jesus? And so I guess I want you all to know that, that I want to fully commit to embracing the gospel, the good news of a sacrificing Savior. Like that, that's what I want to be about. That's how I want to lead. And my hope is that, that all of us here can partner in that embrace as well. Thanks.
3: This idea that we have that we need to think out of the box is just wrong. I think instead we need to go box shopping. (laughs) And we need to try on as many different boxes we can find until we find the one that catalyzes our thinking. So to me boxes are kind of like, you know, lane markers on the highway. You know, they, they are constraints, they are limiting our human freedom, but they are constraints that liberate.
4: The Heath Brothers, I'm Adam, outreach intern, that's me. Um, The Heath Brothers, that was one of them. They wrote a book called um, Made to Stick, and what they spoke on this time was a book called Switch. What Switch is all about is how to change when change is hard. Um, And they said change is hard because it's filled with inner conflict. Um, Part of us desires to change, like, oh, it'd be great to lose five pounds, but the other part of us really wants the cookie in the cupboard. And when change doesn't succeed, the cookie lover in us always wins. Um, the key to change is not focusing on the places where we have the most trouble with, just like that, losing the five extra pounds, but instead focus on um, what the Heath Brothers called bright spots in our lives. Try to understand why we succeed there and, and, and go there. So an example would be, um, we just had a baby, me and my wife Jenna. They're just right back there. Um, that change wasn't hard for us. Um, not that it doesn't, have, it doesn't come with struggles, but it, w- it wasn't just a huge life change where I was like, oh, man, you know, this is great, this is fun for a day or so, but, um, you know, can, can, we bring, can we bring her back to the hospital now? now can, can we put her back in? You know, we can't do that, but that's okay. That's, not a, that's, that's fine because that change was easy. We're talking about change that's hard. Um, so through some research the Heath brothers did, um, they kind of came up with three things how to succeed uh, in change when change is hard. Um, the first one, shrinking the change. This is making the impossible change smaller so it's attainable. And I'm, I, um, kinda, I'm using the example of a marathon, uh, which is funny because I've never run a marathon. I can run maybe a mile or so. Um, <laughs> but you don't think about running the 27 miles tomorrow if you haven't been running for a year. That's not. That's not how you prepare for a marathon. How, how you change that is you say tomorrow. I think I'm going to run a block, two blocks, a mile, maybe two miles, depending on how in shape you are. Um, and then after a while, you'll 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 get to that. Number two, prepare for adversity, um, just like it sounds. When, we we kind of start with this hope, um, and the, and they kind of they had a kind of a cool graph curve that I'll just use my hands with. So. You know, they start up here, and there's hope. Like, oh, this marathon this is going to be so great. I'm going to be in shape. It's going to be so, feel so good when I finish. And and as we go, we start running, and we're running. You know, get two, three, four, five miles, and it's it's getting really hard. And we start slowing down, and um, we, we kind of get to a place where it. Oh, oh there we go. This is all weird on me. Um, we get to a place where we we think, oh, this this just isn't worth it. I. I've been running five, six, six miles for the past two weeks, and I just, I can't push beyond that. Um, but they say prepare for that, because after a while, we, we get past that. And, and we get to a, a place where we, we have confidence, and you know, we're in 12, 15, 20 miles, 25 miles. We feel like we're ready for that marathon the next weekend. And then the third thing they talked about was the growth principle, knowing that succeeding in small things make, makes us able um, to succeed in larger things down the line. So basically just um, kind of what I was talking about, just, just knowing that if we can succeed in those small things, if we can run a mile, we can run 27. But we just have to keep succeeding in those smaller things. So that's what they talked about, and we'll, I'll kind of um, try and wrap up with how, how that can help us. Um, so, they, what they challenged and inspired me about is being Christ to everyone God has placed in my life. I'm going to read uh, from Matthew 5. Uh, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father. We've used that verse quite a bit here. Um, and lately, I've had an overwhelming feeling that God desires much, much more from me. Um, but when I look at the, the need in the world, it, it's just overwhelming. And like what Brandon was talking about, the, the HIV, you know, AIDS in Africa. Millions of people are dying. Children are sex slaves in India and all over the world, even in, in the U.S. And even just here, the people I encounter day to day in Bozeman in the Valley. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. You're just looking at this mountain of, of need and it, it can get so big sometimes that we just say ah, like why, why would I even try and touch that I can't, I can't make a difference in that. But it, if we're able to shrink the change like the Heath brothers talk about maybe we could make a little bit of impact. Um, so for us as a, as a family um, at Journey I think what this means is that we, we just have to do something. God places us into life situations intentionally people that we're working with, families that we're in, the people we just hang around day to day. I I think we have to believe that God puts us in those places for a purpose. I think that purpose is so we can make an eternal difference in those people's lives. We're to be a light in the dark places of those people's world. And it makes sense. Why wouldn't we start doing that in, in the places we have influence in, where we already have relationships with those people? Those people already trust us. Why not try and intentionally cultivate those relationships um, for a higher purpose? So this means that we need to be looking for things, looking for needs around us and meet them. Brian talks about this. See a need, meet a need. Um, Christ says, if someone asks for our coat, give them your tunic as well. I don't have any extra tunics. I don't know about you guys, but I, I do have money that I can give to a coworker who can't afford lunch. I've got an extra 20 minutes to listen to a friend who's dealing with addiction. And I do have the hope of the world in me that I can share with somebody who's lost. Now, obviously this takes time and we're going to have setbacks, but if we can prepare for the adversity, um, just like they say, and we can rely on God for our strength to carry on, we'll begin to change the world through just these small acts of kindness. And if we can shrink the change and decide to do something, just anything, we'll begin to change the trajectory not only of those of who are around us but will be changing the way um, of our life and making it look more like Christ. People in the the universities today tend to say, oh, you know, we don't study role models anymore. We don't have heroes. We don't study heroes. I think that's nonsense. I think it's really important to have heroes. Not that you can be the hero, but that you can be inspired by, that you can look for qualities in in that leader, that hero of yours or that heroine of yours, and then it helps to awaken something in you. The reason you want to study others is to, what it can help you understand about yourself and what you need to work on. Because leadership is not an easy journey, and it is all about the journey.
3: Hello. My, uh, my name is John. I'm the executive pastor here. And I always like to tell people that uh, I feel a, a real privilege to do that, serve as the executive pastor of this church. And so thank you for allowing me to do that. Um, we're clipping along pretty good, aren't we, with these guys coming up. And uh, one of the major takeaways from the summit was that uh, a speaker should never go more than about 30 minutes. Actually, more than about 25 minutes. And so, uh, because what they told us is that if, if someone's talking more than about 30 minutes, you guys, at least half of you guys, are starting uh, to have sexual fantasies. And so, so we, we came away with that. And so... Uh, we're doing our job, and so we'd like you guys to, you know, <laughs> stay focused, please. Uh, all right, how many of you knew of David Gergen? No of them recognize him. Can I just see? Okay, a few, right? And I thought about, like, how many of you know about Michael Jackson, right? <laughs> lots, lots. And and, and, uh, and I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I didn't know much about David Gergen, but I was surprised as I learned about him, you know, that I didn't know more of him because of some of the things he's done. And let me tell you about a few of those things. He's definitely an expert on leadership. And uh, his credentials, we'll talk about that here a little bit. He's a, he's a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law School. Uh, he is currently the, a political analyst for both CNN and PBS. He's an uh, editor-at-large for U.S. News and World Report. And then uh, he authored a book called uh, Eyewitness to Power, and which is very fitting, because what this guy, probably one of the biggest things that he did that amazed me was uh, he served as White House advisor for four different presidents. Four, four presidents were Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. And I just thought, wow, what, what an opportunity to be the right-hand man to these four presidents. Just an incredible thing. And I was surprised as Hybels uh, uh, interviewed Gergen, uh, he was actually willing to talk about some of the the characteristics and traits of these four presidents, both good and bad, and so I want to share a few of those with you because it was so interesting to me to hear about that. Uh, start with Nixon. Nixon, he said, was the best strategist of all of them. Uh, he was fantastic uh, at looking into the future and seeking out opportunities. And he actually said the, uh, that the relational work he did with China was, was, you know, simply brilliant. Reagan, Reagan, he said, was the best leader. Uh, he actually stated that he considered Ronald Reagan the best leader since Roosevelt. And I I just thought that was quite a thing to say about a president. President Ford was described as the most decent, just a genuine, nice guy. He said he felt most comfortable when he was hanging out with Gerald Ford. And then President Clinton, extremely bright, tactical, and resilient. He said whenever this president... uh, fell down or had a setback he was extremely quick to kind of recover and uh, that sounds like Clinton to me he's done a lot of that just did a great thing this week overseas getting those uh, folks released from prison and then and then Gergen was willing to talk about some of the negative traits of these presidents which was really intriguing to me he started with Nixon he said Nixon had a dark side to him Uh, and to be successful he simply needed to avoid those folks who appealed to his dark side. And I thought that was a real cool thing for us to hear. Uh, those of us that have a dark side, maybe all of us have a little bit of a dark side, if we just think about avoiding the folks that appeal to that dark side, I thought that, was, I thought that was great advice. Talking about Gerald Ford, he didn't have a lot to say, but he said Gerald Ford was naive. He was just a little too naive. And so that got him into some problems. Reagan, Reagan was... <laughs> This, this, this was kind of funny. He said Reagan occasionally just detached himself and took his hands off the wheel. I was like, oh, great, our president's taking the hands off the wheel of our country. But I think what, he, what Reagan was good at is he built teams, and he said if he had a great team around him, he did real well. And if he, uh, if he had kind of a poor team, then Reagan would tend to struggle. I think we saw that in his presidency. Then he, then he came back to uh, Clinton, and he said Clinton had the same dark side issues as Nixon, And although uh, his moral failure that we all witnessed was a huge mistake, an even greater mistake was when Clinton failed to just admit his mistake and ask for forgiveness from the American public. And I I really agreed with that. And I think a lot of people in the auditorium were kind of shaking their heads. Yep, yep, that's what he should have done. So I want to give you just a few one-liners to jot down. Uh, As I listened to this man speak that I picked up on about four things that make sense about leadership. Number one, uh, not, not every reader is a leader, but every leader is a reader. And I think Gergen's just saying, let's get in the books, guys. Read, gain some knowledge. I like that. Number two, when you're on the dance floor, occasionally make your way to the balcony. And what he's talking about there is just getting away from it, taking a look, taking a step back, figuring out what you're doing with your leadership. Number three, all great leaders have great flaws, and I think that's a good thing to admit. All great leaders have great flaws, and what separates the great leaders is how they come to grips with those flaws, how they examine that. And four, and we're going to kind of settle in with the Journey Church on this one, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Talking about having teammates and not doing it alone. The era of the Lone Ranger is long gone, Gergen stated, Great leaders now build great teams uh, around them to succeed. So that's what I've been thinking about with us, guys, is uh, we've got a lot of things we want to do going forward. Paul in Ephesians uh, 4 tells us uh, that if we're going to accomplish things in the church with with greatness, that we can't do it alone. So uh, you can kind of look that up in Ephesians 4, 12 to 3. I'd read it to you, but I just found out that you guys should be doing your own reading. So... I'll let, you, I'll let you do that this week. Uh, and so, guys, if we're going to, like Brian, Brandon said, if we're going to go to Ethiopia and, and, and help an orphanage, and if we're going to continue to have an impact on the Galton Valley here, uh, bringing the kingdom to the Galton Valley, uh, if we're going to get a hundred more, a few hundred more seats in this gymnasium this fall as we fill up, we're all going to have to become better leaders and better teammates. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm just going to ask you guys to think about that, work on it. Help me be a better leader this year and we'll try to help you guys be better leaders. Thanks. Thanks.
0: What can't you stand? What is it? that you can't
3: stand.
2: What that is often creates the tension, the angst, the frustration, the internal firestorm in you, the capacity for activism that God speaks to you about someday that launches you into leadership. I'm calling it these days your holy discontent. What is your holy discontent?
0: In the session that I asked myself to talk about, Bill Hybels, who is the founding and senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Barrington, Illinois, he's also the kind of the brainchild, the brains behind the and founder of the Leadership Summit, he talked about his learnings in this new reality that we're all living in today. Like it or not, he says, since sometime late in 2008, everything has changed in our cultural, economic, and sociopolitical political landscape of not just our nation, but actually of our entire world, the planet, frankly. Heibel's likened this new era, this new reality to a rogue wave. You've probably, because you all watch Deadliest Catch, you know about these rogue waves. They're the waves that caused the ship captains, the uh, crab ship captains, to grab their uh, PA system and shout to the deck crew to look out or hang on or, you know, you've seen it, right? It's only the most popular show on cable television these days. You all watch. And these rogue waves, they cause ocean-going ship captains to literally quake in their boots. They can be so deadly. Known to reach heights of 80-plus feet tall. Imagine that, a wave that's 80-plus feet tall. Just think about that on the next cruise you take. An 80-foot wave. And your chances of surviving that in a carnival cruise liner are not good, by the way. Not to frighten you, of course. Don't, don't be scared. But rogue waves, they send ship crews scrambling for life preservers, scrambling for life rafts, and very often fighting for their own survival while bobbing up and down on turbulent seas. That's a landscape much like we find ourselves living in during these quite tumultuous days. And you feel them, don't you? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And the temptation for humanity during rogue wave seasons, during tumultuous times times like we're living in right now, is to move very simply into a survival mode. Just hunkering down, keeping a low profile, keeping your head down, out of harm's way, cocooning up, insulating oneself, just playing it safe in every way that you could possibly play it safe. Financially, relationally, even spiritually playing it safe. However, Hebels call our attention to an Old Testament minor prophet, very minor prophet named Habakkuk who calls to mind quite another view of these rogue wave seasons. Look at Habakkuk 3, 2. Lord, this is Habakkuk speaking. I have heard the news about you. He's looking back in history and saying, I have heard the news about you. I am amazed at what you have done down through history. Lord, do great things once again in our time. Make those things happen again in our own days. See, while rogue wave seasons might move us to think differently about economic sustainability and there are things we can learn in these times. They ought not move us to think differently about the ongoing, ever-expanding, ever-increasing work of God right here in our hearts and in our world. Habakkuk is crying out to God from the depths of a very difficult rogue wave season. He says, Lord, I have heard the news about you. I am utterly amazed at what you've done but Lord, may that activity that you did in the past continue in our time. Do great things once again in our time. Make those things happen again in our very own days, right here, right now, where I'm living, where I'm standing. Because see, far from being just a season of survival mode, far from just being a season of hunkering down and keeping a low profile and keeping your head down out of harm's way and just cocooning up, insulating oneself, playing one, playing it safe and every way possibly, financially, relationally, spiritually speaking, this rogue wave season that we're all living in right now ought to be moving us. It ought to be motivating us to ask a question. And it's this question. What's the great thing? What are the great things that I'd like to see, that we'd like to see God do in our day? Right here, right now. What's the great things that we'd like to see God do in this time, in this season, in this day and just fill in that blank what are the great things that you'd like to see god do see god's done great things before and he wants to continue doing those great things today he's not stopping his work of doing great things just because the stock market in one week dropped 1800 points he's not stopping his great work just because millions and millions of us have lost 60 percent of our retirement portfolio Just because it's a rogue wave season, God's activity and God's work and God's stirring is not stopping. What's the great things that you're pleading with God to be doing in this time, in this season, in this day? And then just fill in that blank. Fill it in. But that brings us to another question that we have to hold the mirror up quite closely to ourselves and answer. How has God done those great things in seasons past? How has he done it? He's done it through people, hasn't he? And he's not just done it through any people, but he's done it through those great things, through a certain kind of person. Second Chronicles 16.9 describes the kind of people God uses to do great things. The Lord searches, watch this, all the earth for people who have given themselves completely to him. For people who have given themselves completely to him. How can you answer the question? Have you given yourself completely to God? What's your answer to that question? Have you given yourself completely to God? Or are you dabbling on both sides of the fence? Are you trying to have it both ways? Are you giving yourselves to lesser things than completely to God? Some of us try, but we can't have it both ways. You can't desire for God to do great things in our time while we're messing with lesser things that are thousands of miles from the heart of God. Have you given yourself completely to him? Have you asked him to do great things in our time, right here, right now, in you first, through you second? And here's where the rubber meets the road for us as the Journey Church family, the Journey Church community. What do we want more than anything to see God do in this time? What are the great things that we're asking for God to do in this time? What great things are we praying for and hoping for and longing after and working our dogs off to see happen in our day, in our city, in our valley, in our state, maybe even in our region? What are those great things? We, we know what some of them are, Sure. But what other great things do we want to see God do through us? And then we must hold the mirror up and we must examine ourselves, right? If we want to see God do great things, we have to look inward and ask ourselves the hard question, have we fully availed ourselves, our lives, to God? Or is there something about us that represents a partial or fractional commitment to Him? That might somehow be limiting the great things that God wants to do in our time. Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside, if you would? And I just invite you to go to prayer and listen into the Lord. Think on everything that we five have talked on today and summarized, encapsulated. What might the Lord be prompting your heart toward? Think on those things. And then would you think and look and examine yourself around those two challenges I just talked about? Fill in that blank, first of all. What's the great things that you'd like to see God do right here, right now in this rogue wave season that we're all living in? What is it? Fill in that blank. hold the mirror of examination up real close to your heart and your soul and would you take a hard and honest straightforward direct examination of your yieldedness to God have you given yourself completely to him or are you holding something some part some piece maybe you're holding your whole life back from him frankly Mm -hmm. look in And maybe for you, after examining yourself today, you've found that there's parts and pieces, and maybe your whole self, that you haven't availed to God. What's it look like for you to give yourself completely to Him? What's that look like? What's got to go? What's just got to go? What's just got to change? What's just got to start? Maybe for you, it's a matter of what's got to stop. And then would you just do it? Just do it. Don't pussyfoot around it and don't beat around the bush and don't, yeah, I'll get to that sometime. Just do it. What God has nudged you toward and what God has brought to mind and heart in these moments, just get about it. Just get about giving yourself completely to Him. It's what you were made for. It's why you were put on the planet, to know and so God we thank you so much for this chance to learn and grow and be stretched Lord I pray for us in this room that we would desire after great things of you that we would hope and that we would pray and that we would long and that we would work work our dogs off, God, to be about your kingdom coming to earth just as it is in heaven, Father. And I pray that you would regularly infuse all of us with your learning, your instruction, your challenge, Father, so that our leadership bandwidth might increase and expand and grow And I pray for us as a community that our hearts would be fully availed to you, that there wouldn't be any part, any peace, nothing, that we've restricted from your activity and your presence and submission to you, frankly, God. Have at us. Have at us. We're all yours. We're yielded to you. We're open to you. We're compelled by you, Father. our joy to call ourselves your children and thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. Because we love you, because we're yours, we're going to follow you and we're going to obey you and we're going to trust you. All the way down to our very eternities, God, we entrust to your care. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen.